may be seated. Oh, you're here. <laughs> In his book, Heaven, Randy Alcorn tells the story of Ruth Anna Metzger, a professional singer who was hired to perform at the wedding of a very wealthy businessman. Now, the reception for this wedding was going to take place on the top two floors of Seattle's Columbia Tower. It was an elaborate spread, and Ruthanna and her husband Roy were excited to go and be a part of the wedding and the reception to follow. So after the wedding, the bride and the groom, they, they come to a, a large glass staircase that would take them up to the reception, and they climb the steps, and the wedding party follows, all the guests follow. They get to the top, and there is a maitre d' dressed to the nines, and he's got a He's got a bound book with the names of all the guests that are invited to the reception. And so Ruthanna gets there, and the maitre d' asks, last name, and she says, Metzger. And so he looks down, and he says, I'm not seeing your name. And he said, could you spell it for me? And so she spells it. She said, it's Ruthanna and Roy Metzger. And so he looks, and he said, I, I'm not finding it. And she said, well, I've got to be on the list. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm the singer. I performed at the wedding. And the maitre d' says, it doesn't matter who you are or what you did. If your name's not in this book, you're not getting in. And so the maitre d' called for one of the waiters to come over and escort Ruthanna and her husband to the service elevator, which he did. They got on, reached the bottom floor, got in their car, and drove away. And a few miles down the road, Ruthanna's husband said, what happened up there? And she said, I never bothered to RSVP. I, I'm the wedding singer. I just assumed that I was invited. Yeah, have, are you certain that you have a place at God's table? And I really don't ask that question in the negative so much as, you know, I think we all struggle with assurance, don't we? Even though we know we're saved we struggle with feeling like we're saved, believing it sometimes, that we're going to heaven. You know, you can, you can ask Christians, are you saved? Well, yeah, follow the steps. Are you going to heaven? Well, I hope so. Let's remove the hope and replace it with knowing and confidence, right? We all like to know where we're going. I can't tell you how many times when my kids were little, we'd get in the car, I'd say, hop in. they say, where are we going? You want to know where you're going, right? We study maps. We plug in the coordinates on the GPS. We want to know where we're going, and we want to know how to get there. Do you know where you're going? I'm not asking where you're going after church or where you're going tomorrow. I'm talking about the most important question we could ever ask. Where am I going? Where am I going to end up? What's my ultimate destination? Because, you know, Jesus talks about how there's two roads, two paths. He only mentions two, and apparently... Everyone in the world is on one of those two paths. Which one are you on? And can we really know? Assurance of salvation is a dicey topic. I realize that. Many Christians struggle with the security of being in Christ. It's kind of like a roller coaster. You know, one minute you're in, the next minute you're out. It's up and down. And, and we don't always do ourselves any favors as, as Christians refuting the doctrine of once saved, always saved. We can easily give the impression that one minute we're in, the next minute we're out. You know, I sinned. Okay, I'm out. I repented. Okay, I'm back in. I sinned again. Oh, I'm out again. And I repent. Okay, I'm back in. Folks, if that's assurance, you're never going to have it. 
This idea that I'm constantly flopping in and out, that, that's not how this works. We've been looking throughout this series at Ephesians chapter 6. You probably haven't memorized by now, but turn there if you don't. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and pray on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So, you've heard me say it over and over again, but each and every one of us is engaged in a spiritual battle. And you cannot choose to be neutral. Once you became a Christian, you were enlisted in God's army. You've got to fight. Even though the devil is a loser, even though we ultimately gain the victory, as we talked about this morning with Joshua chapter 10, we still actualize what it is that we're going to gain in the end by keeping our foot on the neck of the enemy. Souls are at stake here. This is a fight for our lives, and any soldier worth his salt is going to prepare for the battle at hand. The soldier of Christ equips himself with all the accoutrements here that Paul mentions. And there is another piece that is vital to this defense that we haven't talked about yet, but we're going to get to tonight, and that is the helmet of salvation. Helmets are crucial for a lot of different activities. We wear football helmets when we play football. You wear a helmet when you play hockey. Wear a helmet when you're playing baseball. You wear a helmet when you're cycling. Even our kids, a lot of them will wear helmets as they're riding their bike down the street. Why do we wear helmets? Well, I think that's pretty obvious. To protect our brain, right? Helmets hopefully keep us from having a concussion or a serious brain injury. Soldiers in the first century wore helmets. Many nations would wrap cloth and or leather around animal bones or hooves, and the Roman helmet was a little bit different. It was a little more intricate. It often had a chin strap and a visor and, and pieces that covered the cheeks. The helmet in Paul's day was often made of bronze or iron, and like all helmet wearers in any sport or profession or battle, Roman soldiers wore these helmets obviously for protection. Very rarely did there, did there have to be a reason to uh, don a helmet, uh, especially for the Roman soldier, even in battle because they were often victorious. They were hoping that it would never come into play. Now, obviously, though, they're not going to walk up to someone and say, hey, hit me in the head, see if this thing works. Hopefully, it never comes into play, but if it does, the hope is that it protects them and keeps them from being hurt or seriously injured. For the Christian, the helmet serves the same purpose. It protects our head in a spiritual sense. It protects the mind. As we've said before, the mind 
can be the devil's playground. The devil often attacks us where we're unprotected, and there's probably no place that is more unprotected in the lives of humans than their mind. However, if you notice Paul's writings here, he talks about the helmet of salvation. What's he getting at here? When he, when he mentions the helmet of salvation, what's he talking about? Well, I think he's talking about that it is our brain that contains knowledge of Jesus Christ and what he did for us on that cruel cross. It is our brain that contains the knowledge that we are indeed children of God. And so the helmet of salvation protects our brain by providing assurance of our salvation. Providing the knowledge that we are indeed on the right path, that we are heading in the right direction, and that we're going to eventually reach the right destination. Having that assurance built up in our brains and in our hearts, of course. There's a man that was uh, watching the evening news, and there was a report about a car traveling the wrong way on a busy freeway. The man, knowing that his wife was on that same freeway coming home, calls her cell phone, and he says, Honey, be careful. There is a car traveling in the wrong direction on the freeway. And she responds, One car? There's hundreds of them. <laughs> there are a lot of people. Maybe that's a generalization. There, there are many people who think they're driving in the right direction. They think they're going towards the proper destination, but they fooled themselves, somebody else has fooled them into believing that they're on the right road, traveling in the right direction when they are not. But then there are those Christians who are constantly questioning the direction they're going. Am I saved? Am I right with God? Have I done enough? You ever thought to yourself, surely God is going to give up on me? Surely God will not continue to forgive me. Surely at some point I've done too much wrong to ever be forgiven. And you know who's responsible for such thinking and such doubting about our salvation? It's not God. When we talk about the devil and how he is a formidable foe, then we've got to talk about the weapons that he uses. And certainly doubt may be his best tool in the toolbox. Doubt is one of his greatest weapons. So how do we defend ourselves? Well, Paul says, with the helmet of salvation. This helmet serves to protect our minds from the enemy it blocks the blows that Satan rains down on us. Once the fiery darts have gotten past the shield of righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet is there as that last line of defense to guard us against the devil's doubting. So let's stop hoping that we're saved and start living like we are. Jesus Christ came so that we could have life and have it abundantly, but eternal life in heaven with him someday, it's not some future reward only. It's something that we can enjoy right here, right now, and I believe he intends for us to do so. We can feel secure, because when you're secure, you're a more effective soldier, right? Confident soldiers make the best soldiers. When the Golden Gate Bridge was being built, progress was rather slow. In fact, very slow. So slow that something had to be done. The workers were getting more and more off schedule by the day. And it wasn't because they didn't have enough labor. There were plenty of workers. It wasn't that they didn't have the money. They had plenty of money. The problem was the workers were afraid. They were so scared of falling to their death in the cold San Francisco Bay 
that they worked very tentatively and very slowly, and it held up progress. Until someone came on the scene and decided, okay, we're going to put a safety net under the construction of the bridge so that if someone does fall, they won't fall to their demise. And guess what happened? Work sped up. Progress increased. Day by day, they were going faster than ever. It's amazing what can be accomplished when you're not afraid of dying. In fact, two people still fell, and they fell into the net, and they were fine thus reinforcing that it was going to be okay, that you didn't have to fear. Listen to what is written in 1 John chapter 1. This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is our safety net. This is it. Notice that John does not speak about the fatality of failure. He doesn't say, well, I hope you don't fall, because if you do, it's over for you. No, there's an assumption made here, isn't there? And the assumption is that you're still going to sin, even though you became a child of God. John assumes that Christians will fall. He knows that sin is still an ever-present reality, even for the child of God, which is why he points to the safety net. Notice it again, and this is the scripture from where we get our television program, Life and Light. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He continues, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This should give us great security. This should go a long way to removing our doubts and our fears. We don't have to worry about one fall destroying our soul. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't take sin seriously. I'm not trying to gloss over the fact that we sin, but we shouldn't doubt the grace of God either. Forgiveness is a guarantee for those who humbly seek it, and that, my friends, is assurance. And now I want you to notice how John closes out his letter. Look at John chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has eternal life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Apparently, assurance of salvation was a problem even in John's time. And it seems as though John's primary purpose for writing this letter is so that they would know to give them encouragement to reinforce that they are indeed the saved children of God. He is assuring these Christians that they are a part of God's family and he's reminding them that there is security in Christ. Many years ago, I had a, a lady write to me. She, I don't know where she was from, but she wrote to me asking a question. She said her preacher teaches, preaches from the pulpit, that if you're a child of God and you're traveling down the interstate and another vehicle swerves over and hits you head on and kills you, that if right before that car hits you, you let out a cuss word accidentally, then you're doomed for all eternity. You go to hell and you don't make it to heaven. She said, what do you think about that? And I said, that's terrible teaching is what I said. 
If that's assurance, you can never have it, right? Believing that one sin puts you out. Now, I think what John is getting at is when you live in sin, right? Walking in the light versus walking in darkness. There is a difference between a condemned sinner and a cleansed sinner. All sins are not the same. You've heard that, right? A sin is a sin is a sin. No, 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 it's not either. There's a difference between a cleansed sinner and a condemned sinner. And if we're going to follow this idea that every little sin puts me out and then, you know, I repent and I come back in, I, I go out and I come back in, then there is no assurance. You can never have it. There's a difference in walking in the light and walking in darkness. There's a difference in being given to sin and allowing it to control you and being unrepentant and stubborn in heart and someone who is striving to live life in the light, who is walking in the light, but still falls from time to time. In John's gospel, we find Jesus being interrogated by the Jewish leaders. And they were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Understand the Jews are not asking these questions because they sincerely want to know so that they can follow Jesus, right? They want to catch him in a trap. They want to prove that he's blasphemous so that they can, you know, they can kill him. And Jesus responds with the words, I told you and you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. Now, there are those who believe in the doctrine of once saved, always saved, that, that go to this passage. They will typically turn to that passage as their proof text. But the key is you've got to be in the flock, right? When the prodigal son left the father's household, he was out of fellowship with the father. That was the key, right? When he came back, what did the, what did the father say? This son of mine that was what? Was dead. Well, he wasn't dead. Yeah, he was. He was dead spiritually. But he came back and he was made alive, right? Your fellowship with the father is your salvation, right? And so that's the key, that you're in the flock, that you're in fellowship with God. So it's not a great proof text for that doctrine. But the idea is that it, as we remain in the flock, the thieves or the robbers, they can't snatch us away. They can't rob us of our, the joy of our salvation. The good shepherd gives eternal life. And as long as we follow him, we never perish. No one can snatch us out of his hand. And the reason why is because the Father is greater than all. No one is greater than God or Jesus, and therefore no one can successfully remove us from the flock. We can remove ourselves, but no, one, no outside force is stronger than the one who protects us. You know, like sheep, we humans are restless. You know, we get agitated really easily. We're easily frightened. But the hand of God is our safety net. When we place our trust in the good shepherd, when we follow his lead, there's protection, there's provision, there's assurance. We, we can rest assured that we are secure. And we may question our place in the flock. You know, we may feel like the black sheep and that God would never want us in the flock. But he wouldn't leave the 99 and go search for the one if the if the straying sheep didn't matter, wouldn't go to a cross and die for all if even the black sheep didn't matter. He wouldn't rejoice in finding the cast down if, if we didn't matter that much to him. You read the 23rd Psalm sometime, and if it's anything, it's a message of assurance because it illustrates the life of a sheep under the care of the good shepherd where there is 
protection and provision and discipline and comfort and, of course, security for the sheep that follows. You know, nearing the end of his life, Paul wrote these words to Timothy. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul was confident in his destination, wasn't he? He was confident in the direction he was going. He didn't say, I hope I make it. I hope I get there. And you say, well, yeah, of course he was confident, Chris. I mean, it's Paul. Look at all he did. Don't you think, now this may be a big assumption, but don't you think that Paul reflected on his life before he became a Christian? Don't you think it bothered him still that he persecuted Christians? I mean, I would think that's something that's hard to just kind of put out of your mind or let go of completely. I'm not, I don't, I don't think I'm sure that, that Paul never really thought about that again or regretted it. But even though he labeled himself the chief of sinners, he was moving in the proper direction and he knew it. And he was confident that his journey would end in heaven. Rather than focusing on his past failures, he focused on the cross. You know as well as I do that one of the major hindrances to assurance is ourselves. We get in our own way. We shoot ourselves in the foot. We can't, we can't seem to, to get out of our own way, and so we overthink things. We put too much stock in our feelings, and we, we fixate on our ineptitudes rather than on the grace of God, and we allow self-imposed burdens to crowd out our confidence. We're really good trash collectors. We're terrible garbage men. You ever seen the show Hoarders? these people have a real problem collecting all this stuff to the point that they can't even live their life properly that's us spiritually all of us I say all of us most of us anyway are hoarders we have a hard time letting it go we have a hard time taking it and setting it by the curb and letting the garbage man come and pick it up we're really good trash collectors really bad garbage men and our focus needs to shift instead of instead of investing all of our time and energy into what we haven't done let's fixate on what Christ already did the cross was for you Paul so eloquently stated it when he said but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but receive eternal life God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us salvation comes from one source and one source only and it's not you right? Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. No one is beyond the scope of God's grace. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And remember this, you can be forgiven. In Luke chapter 15, we find that wayward son, who takes his inheritance, blows it on loose living, comes home, and the father throws a party, right? A party ensues. He says, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father responds, let us eat and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. The next time Satan whispers into your ear, you're not really saved. The next time you're tempted to doubt your salvation, the next time you feel that perhaps God no longer wants you, read Romans chapter 8. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. 
We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is assurance. For some of us, we believe the only way we can have assurance is that as soon as we come up out of the baptistry, somebody shoot us in the head, because that way we die a Christian. For some of us, we believe the only way we can have assurance is to die between the hours of 11 o'clock at night and 6 in the morning because we said our prayers at 11 before we went to sleep, and we can't sin while we're sleeping, and we get up at 6, so hopefully we die between 11 and 6 so that we can have assurance. But there's more to it than that. We can truly have assurance because God doesn't lie to you. God doesn't lie to you. Focus on the cross. Follow Jesus. And when you fall, seek forgiveness. Forgive yourself. Keep moving forward unhindered by unnecessary baggage and keep fighting. The devil loves the fact that you give up. Keep fighting. Trust in the God who made salvation possible. And don't just hope in heaven. Know about it. Know that you're going there. Live with confidence that it is a reality for you. I was reading the story the other day about Henry Ford, you know, who really revolutionized things with the invention of the automobile. But as smart as he was, he had a generator one time that he couldn't fix. And so he called on Charles Steinmetz, who was a German genius who worked on those type of machinery. machinery. He had him come in and and see if he could fix it. And so Steinmetz came in. He rejected any help from, from anyone else. He got his notepad, and for two days he made notes as he observed the generator. And then he got a ladder on the second day, and he climbed up the top of it. He took out a piece of chalk, and he marked one of the panels. And then he got the workers to go up there and open the panel and, and change out some equipment and whatever. And, and they put the, the panel back on and it worked beautifully. And Henry Ford was so ecstatic until he got the bill. $10,000. And he thought that was a high price to pay for what little work Charles Steinmetz did. And so in anger, he responded to Steinmetz and asked him for an itemized bill. And Steinmetz responded himself with an itemized bill. Chalk to mark panel, $1. Knowing what panel to mark, $9,999. Ford paid the bill. You probably know this by now, but we have a major problem. And we can't fix it ourselves. It's impossible. But thankfully, we have someone who can. That, of course, is Jesus Christ, who is the remedy to our problem. Not only that, he paid the bill. So we have a choice. We can either live as the redeemed people of God, or we can keep trying to pay the bill. I think you know which choice makes sense. Can we help you tonight? Are you struggling with assurance? Are you struggling with something, something else in your life? Let's pray with you. This is a family, and family prays with each other. Family supports one another. Family weeps with those who weep and rejoices with those who rejoice. Maybe you're ready to take the next step in faith, whatever that may look like. If it's baptism, then let's do that. 
You know, Hudson can tell you there's plenty of water back there. Maybe you're ready to study the Bible with someone. Certainly we can do that as well. Clinton is going to lead us in a song. I want to wish you well this week. Let's go out and let's take the world by storm for Christ. Let's keep fighting. Let's keep our foot on the neck of the enemy, right? If we can help you tonight, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?